0: Action Park media. What about that guy Ryan leaf from Washington. State? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. He's got to be That's right up there. That is an there. insane story. It took doctors 14 hours to remove the benign tumor from Leaf's brain stem. At 35 years old, he recovered from surgery back home in Montana and began radiation treatments. Detectives got a tip that allegedly a Mr. Leaf was receiving prescription drugs that he had no valid prescription for through the mail. He ultimately admitted to committing two residential burglaries, not for the purpose of uh, taking any money or other property, but uh, it was clear from the investigation just to feed his addiction. He was booked with burglary and drug possession charges. He's looking at a number of different third degree and second degree charges. A third degree charge carries a sentence from two to 10 years in prison A second degree felony charge carries a sentence of two to 20 years in prison. In 2012, he was sentenced to up to seven years in prison after pleading guilty to felony burglary for breaking into a Montana home in search of pain medication. He called and said, I'm going to jail, mom. You're now listening to Bust, the Ryan Leaf story. I had slept for three days in this cell I woke up and I finally could see and kind of think fluidly and I just freaked the fuck out because I'd never been in a jail cell like most people and I didn't know like I didn't know what to do because I'd been taking these pills for so long to numb me from feeling anything. And I was so overwhelmed. My legs wouldn't stop vibrating. My mind would not stop racing. I need to find a way to get out of here. I need to find a way to get out of here. I need to find a way to get out of here, get some pills and just end my life. Ironically enough, the best thing that could have happened to me was to me being locked down. Like it was hard. I was going through some minimal withdrawal symptoms and things like that, but not overwhelmingly so. Just the psychological of what was going on right now in that moment just was freaking me out so much. So what do you do when you're locked in a cell? They weren't letting me into general population because they said it was for my safety. The warden explained to me that there would be somebody that would love the opportunity to to kick the shit out of ryan leaf i guess i suppose they could have tried i mean i'm a big fucker six seven 270 pounds you know take a few of them and maybe that was the the idea but in limiting me that access that didn't allow me to go outside at all they had to figure out a way where i could get into the rec yard they allowed me into the basketball court at night like at 10 to 11 o'clock at night and i just I just figured out i hated seeing people around all day long so i would stay up all night long my mind's just racing and i would get into the basketball court which was covered just steel and and concrete wrapping around it and i'd shoot some hoops and then i'd go back in and i'd sit and i started to read it's the only thing available for any sort of entertainment so i started to read everything didn't matter what it was young adult novels I read like the Twilight series you know the Hunger Games just to pass the time and I finally I finally convinced a bail bondsman to put up my bond I didn't have any money to pay it but he got me out I got out he took me to this restaurant local restaurant and I just ate some real food because I've just been eating the shit jail food for the last 60 days or whatever it was And all of a sudden as i'm eating there my dad walks into the restaurant and he just looks frantic my dad looks at the bail bondsman who had gotten a call from him just for collateral essentially and my dad tells the bail bondsman he can't pay you he can't pay you you need to take him back he can't pay you but the bondsman's like well he's my client you know he said he's gonna said he's gonna get the money and and my dad's like well he's gonna do it illegally he's gonna write you a bad check he's gonna disappear he can't pay it, take him back to jail, but the bondsman won't do it. So I get in the car with my dad. He doesn't know what the fuck to do. He drives me back to the house where my mom and him are and they're so fearful of their son. I sleep there that night and I swear to God, they, they probably sat up and just were awake the entire night, worried that I was gonna sneak out, go do something stupid, end my life. I Just the fear that they had to have been living in. I was the most fucking selfish person for so long. When I woke up the next morning, they, you know, again confronted me and they they said, you need to go back to jail. You know how hard that was probably for them? I know my mom who loves me dearly, only wanted her son to be safe. In her home, in a bed with a roof over his head would be the safest place, most likely from everybody else. Not for me in that moment. And the courage it took for both of them to say Ryan, you need to go turn yourself back in. Called the bondsman, they had to drive all the way back, turn back in my bond and check me back into jail. So I had to go through that whole process again, right? Get strip searched and, I mean, it's just, it's it's traumatic, right? Of course it is. They look through every body cavity, make you bend over and cough. I mean, just like the most humiliating process. And so I had to do that again and they put me back in the glass case and I was back. Now, I hadn't been high for about 60 some days, but I was still so psychologically like vibrating. Just, I was just, my legs wouldn't stop shaking. Uh, I just was freaking out. My mind was running hundred miles an hour, trying to figure out my next step, what I was gonna do. My life is over, all these things. And I would sit in there for another 23 days until my case was fast tracked with a plea deal. You know, I kept reading, I kept crossing off days, and I just, I I had no idea what was ahead of me. I know that the burglary charge alone in the state of Montana ran a maximum sentence of 20 years. I had two burglary charges against me, so that's 40 years if they went consecutively. But I didn't fucking care. I kind of was starting to become and feel a little relief that I was no longer chasing that. It's chaos in there, but for whatever reason, I I didn't feel a lot of the chaos because I had no responsibility. People told me where to go, when to go, what to eat, when to eat. My attorney did a heck of a job. Again, that white privilege that we hear all the time reared its ugly head again. And I was kind of given a slap on the wrist. In fact, the plea deal I accepted the judge actually reduced it into the sentencing process. I stood up in that courtroom. I don't really remember what I said, but it was pretty much like, to no detriment to my lawyer, but I don't understand any of this. I don't understand why I'm not going away for 40 years. I mean, I like literally asked for more time. I just thought I was doing everybody a favor. Do you believe that these 15 months will be productive for me? I don't believe that nine months of it from now is gonna be any different than right now five or 10 years of Brian free drama my family, this community, particularly this nation. (laughs) Uh, Maybe pure bliss for people. I've enjoyed my time in there better than I have uh, the previous 15 years out there. And so, sitting in that courtroom being sentenced by this judge, I was like, yeah, this made more sense than me being a Heisman Trophy candidate. This made more sense. And the judge gave me, seven years, but also didn't sentence me to prison. He sentenced me to a rehab or a treatment facility. Now it was a lockdown treatment facility, but still it would have been nine months and I would have been out on a seven year sentence. I would have been out in nine months. There's something about the criminal justice system that unless you've interacted with it, it doesn't seem real. Like it, it's the, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and the, the negotiating and everything, you just step into a courtroom and when it's not with a trial and a jury and stuff like that, it's just done between a DA and a, a, an attorney and then placed in front of a judge. And It just doesn't seem real. Doesn't seem real at all. What is real is when the sentence comes down and they say, all right, you're going to this treatment facility. They come in to transport you and they put you in shackles. Now this happened before when I had to go to court, shackles on your legs, on your hands, connect it to your waist in a striped prison suit, you know, incredibly humiliating. And they take me to this treatment facility, it's in a little town called Lewistown, Montana. I think there's about 60 people that are in these facilities and it's really a therapeutic community. So it's pretty aggressive in its constructive criticism and engagement and showing you the mirror. And when I got there, just like it's always been the case and everywhere I've gone or dealt with things in terms of the legal system stuff, they don't know how to handle me. Like he's just too famous in a small town mentality, right? So at first it was really kid's gloves. Like they were gonna be really passive and how they did stuff and I fucking hate that I'm treated different I was being treated different than the other guys didn't do me any favors you know when I walked in they all had read an article in the paper where I was misquoted to saying like I can't wait to get there and like help them get better that was the quote or something like that so they already had a pent up hostility towards me walking in because like who the, who the fuck does this guy think he is right He's just a fucking drug addict like us who got busted, which is exactly the truth. What they had heard coming in was like, oh, this guy thinks he's better than us. And I was so beaten down that I didn't think I was better than anybody anymore. But sure enough, I get there and the kid gloves come on by the administrators and the, and the counselors and everything like that. And they kind of raise me up on a pedestal a little bit. And then I start thinking like, oh, yeah, I'm so much fucking better than these people. You just don't change who you've been the entirety of your life because some bad shit happened to you. Behaviors are reinforced and are enabled. You'll behave that way. And that's what I did. I behaved like a fucking asshole. And when the kid gloves part wasn't working, then the administration flipped a complete 180 and really kind of came with the, you know, the stick. And I was like, what the fuck? And there was just back and forth. And I just thought I was so much smarter than everybody else. And there was this one counselor. I called him uh, Yosemite Sam because that's what he fucking looked like. He had the, the mustache and he was a cowboy and he was a little short piece of shit. And a, one of our assignments was always these CTE, cognitive therapy exercises. And what they were is when you have a negative thought, you write it down, you write down the feelings behind it, your corresponding thoughts, and then a counter thought to get you out of it. It's a really good practice. I do it to this day. When you go through these exercises and write these things down, I wrote down, like, I want to smash my glass against the head of Yosemite Sam's head. And then I went through the processing of the feelings I had, the corresponding thoughts, and then the thought that would get me out of it. And one of the biggest thoughts that get me out of anything now when I'm having those kind of thoughts are stripes and shackles. I just say that to myself, stripes and shackles, because I remember that moment. humiliation of it. And then another one I write down is I'm I'm killing my pops. That's another thought intervention that stops me from acting on these negative thoughts. Well, I wrote it down. It's the exercise, right? It's the exercise. They pulled it up as threatening a administrator and they pulled me out and threw me into the local county jail and had a administrator come down and essentially have a little kangaroo court to decide on whether or not they were going to dismiss me from the from the program and send me to actual prison. Like this one woman was going to have a say. I'd gone through the whole process with a judge and everything like that, but now this little old probation and parole bitch was going to make a decision. And I, I just battled. I battled her through the whole process. I wrote down all the things about fucking Yosemite Sam and what he had done and I wasn't I wasn't taking any accountability for my part like I I was doing the assignment but I knew what I was doing too I was like it was threatening in manner of course because like well apparently Ryan wants to smash his glass against the the teacher's head did I do it no but I gave him an opportunity and we sat in there and she looked at me and she just I swear she just laughed she's from my hometown probably had the worst possible memory of me. I, can't, I don't know how much older she was to me. She looked fucking beat up and old, but maybe she was my age too. I don't know. Montana can do some crazy things to, to people. <laughs> you know, maybe I fucking treated her like shit one time too. But anyway, she just judged jury and executioner and said, I'm find you guilty and uh, I'm remanding you to the custody of the state prison system where you will spend the rest of your sentence i was just like "Fuck you and away i went shackled once again led to the actual state prison in deer lodge montana i had no idea what was coming what it was like and everything like that well they take you there they put you in a white jumpsuit and they put you in an evaluation period where you could sit from anywhere from 15 days to 100 days while they evaluate you and give you a point system on where you will be placed within the prison system in terms of your threat level. You go outside one hour a day and you're locked up the entire rest of the time with somebody else. This is the too much information part but there's a fucking toilet in there. That's it. You and another guy with a toilet and a sink. And that's how you live 23 out of the 24 hours a day. The whole process of having to shit in front of somebody else. It's just incredibly humiliating. But I was there because of what I'd done. So, I mean, I, I, I still thought I was the victim in all this too, you know? Because I thought every fucking night through those, whatever, 110 days I was in the evaluation cells about Yosemite Sam and about this bitch who sent me to prison. I thought about them every fucking night. And I was homicidal. And how I thought about them. I thought when I got out, I mean, I had like very lucid fantasies of finding them both. Taking them to this family cabin out in the Highwood Mountains and then dug holes and tortured them for days and days and days before I killed them. I mean, that's that's how sick I was. And it consumed me for those 110 days. Just thinking about that, I'm going to fucking find them. I'm going to have just my way with them and they're going to feel the pain that I've felt. They finally evaluated me. They placed me into... Uh, I, I don't understand any of it. They, just, they placed me into a, a cell block. And I walk in and... I, I didn't know what to expect. And it's just a bunch of guys like me. It either revolves around a mental health diagnosis and a substance abuse issue. We are all the same. We're all these flawed human beings. They were trying to figure it out, dealing with something in a very unhealthy and toxic way. My roommate was a short guy, bald head. He kind of showed me the ropes. It was just tiny little room, bunk beds. The big fucker was on top, he says. I'm like, are you sure, man? Are you afraid this thing breaks and I just crush you in the middle of the night? I'm a big dude. I'm not getting any smaller either, right? Food's terrible. I wasn't working out. None of it. And he had a little, I don't don't know how big the TV was. It was like like the size of what iPhones are now these days, right? It was about that size. So there was some semblance of, like, life again. And as I was getting settled and starting to learn the ropes, um, I think the biggest concern for a lot of people was, you know, was somebody going to try something with me. I didn't have that fear, but a lot of other people did. I think family and the thing you got to remember about me and my home state of Montana the guys in there looked at me as someone who like got out and made it big he was an NFL football player so there could have been that one rogue person who simply wanted to kick the shit out of Ryan Leaf or or do something worse to get some street cred or but it, that just didn't happen I did have to toe the the line on not disrespecting anybody though because I didn't want to fucking talk to anybody but if people came and talked to me and wanted to kind of ask some questions around playing football and stuff like that I, I just couldn't be a dick and be like fuck you man get away from me if you show any kind of disrespect to somebody that's the only thing that anybody takes any anything seriously in there it's such a toxic masculinity in, in prison so I had to toe a line there in terms of not disrespecting anybody but everybody just kind of wanted to know me and I just kept to myself and as I was getting settled this guard walks in and says you're being transferred and I was there for like 20 days, and they're transferring me to this for-profit prison on the High Line near the Canadian border about 90 miles from my hometown. I'm gonna tell you the story about what this transport was like. They, they take you down, they do the whole thing that I have had done to me before, right, the shackles. I'm six foot seven, probably nearing 300 pounds at the time now with these shackles on, and they load you into I don't know how they can transport people like this, but it was literally like a dog kennel. And there was like eight of us in the back there in this little dog kennel for three and a half hours. No stops. Guys, had, guys pissed themselves on the floor. It was the most inhumane thing that I, I just remembered. So again, that transport that day for three and a half hours and the smell of piss and grown men being treated like dogs, essentially, shackled brought to this for-profit prison. And as I walk into this concrete jungle of a prison in Shelby, Montana, I could see the rocky mountains around me that I used to grow up and hunt in and fish in, now being surrounded by the razor wire and the fences. And again, the idea of what do you do, how do you handle somebody like me, they started with the kid gloves again. And the warden walks in. I greatly doubt that the warden comes to see a new transport group of people during the process, and then, let alone speaks to one of the inmates who's being transferred by himself in a room. Guys from Texas, big football fan, tells me he's gonna put me in the Honor Pod. Now, the Honor Pod is where you have the most freedom of anything. Like, they don't lock the doors at night, they have video game consoles and TVs out in the day room. They have a program where they bring in dogs, where you get to have a dog and and raise them and and teach them to be a service animal and things like that. It's a great program, everything. But guys work for years to build up credit, good time to get into those programs. And he was just gonna fucking throw me in it. And I looked at him and I said, "Dude, you're doing me no favors by this. People are gonna resent the shit out of me." He didn't care. You know, he he sent me along, and again, just another example of privilege. And one of the deals is, though, to be on this pod, you have to have a job, like working in the kitchen or whatever, just a menial job to stay on the pod. And I remember I'd been on the, the honor pod for about a couple months, and one of the guards finally came up to me and says, all right, I have your job assignment. I'm like, I ain't fucking working. Well, you have to work to stay in here. I didn't fucking want to be in here, lady well, if you don't have a job, they're going to move you to I said, fucking great, right? Whatever. I didn't ask to be put in here. And so, you know, she got her wish and I got moved off the honor pod, which was great. You know, I uh, got moved into a new cell with a new roommate who would end up changing my life. I'd been in prison two and a half months. It was April 10th. This guy comes up to me and says, hey, you come outside with us? Me And the guys were we're gonna play some we're gonna play some flag football during wreck time, and it's the last thing I wanted to do. I don't know why I like I went. And I remember out there they asked me to be all time quarterback so I could just throw to all these guys and everything like that, you know. And I started firing it around, you know, warming up a little bit. I hadn't really thrown a football in a while, but then I kind of heard some rustling going on, and then I could heard the the walkie-talkie squawking. The guards were like man, fucking leaves down here throwing a football. Like, all these guards started to show up around the perimeter. It was like a page out of the, the movie The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds and Adam Sandler <laughs> did it again. Just... And, you know, it goes off without incident. You know, two hours of messing around outside. And I was so miserable walking off that dirt covered field back to my Cell, humiliated of, of, of where I was and then asking myself why the fuck did I do that and I still thought it was all about me like I'm what a, I'm such a you know what a piece of shit and all the things that are going through my mind and the guy that had asked me came up later that night and he poked his head into my room and said hey man I just want to tell you that like today was my birthday and you, and you gave me the coolest birthday present I've ever got. I got to play catch with an NFL quarterback. Now, I still couldn't hear it in the moment. I still couldn't hear that I just did something for somebody. I was still thinking about how embarrassing it was for me and how I was so much more important than all these guys and why the fuck was I there and this is stupid and all that stuff. I still couldn't see that I actually had done something for somebody else and kind of you know made the guy's day for just doing something as nonchalant as throwing a football around with everybody. That was my mentality through the entire time I was there, at least for the 26 of the 32 months I was locked up. When I got moved and I talked about getting that new roommate, well, that roommate had been in prison now for about eight years. He was a Afghan, Iraqi war veteran who had done something that I think most people have done at some point in their lives, and that's drive drunk just so happened that he would kill somebody that night and he was 23 at the time and had spent the last eight years there or so and he made amends for what he had done he was not resolute with being that person that everybody thought he was and he wanted to better himself he was taking classes getting his GED wanting to get his degree so when he got out, he could use his GI bill and go become like a helicopter pilot or an engineer. I looked at him like he was insane. I'm like, are you fucking stupid? Look at us. We are prisoners. Right? We're worthless. We're losers. The judge told us we had no value. He warehoused us and gave us a number. So I didn't understand it. I didn't do anything, right? I sat on my ass. Prison isn't a deterrent. I had decent room, place to sleep three meals a day little 13 inch flat screen at the end of my bed with like 40 channels in the nfl red zone in the fall i mean it's it's not a deterrent you know a canteen where you could go buy a bunch of junk food and i just was like i'm okay with this that's a scary part of all this like i was in that moment going i'm okay with this this is the rest of my life fuck it that's fine what a selfish act i wouldn't see anybody wouldn't talk to anybody they'd hand out mail every day in the afternoon and i could just hear my name being yelled out on the main floor and i would just sit in my room at first it was because i just didn't want mail i didn't care but then it became a game with the guards because i wanted the guards to do my bidding for me and bring me my fucking mail a little speaker in your in your room and intercom said leaf you have mail in the guards office and i wouldn't go get it for days and it would just stack up because i would get more mail than anybody some crazy mail right crazy mail from from women and stuff with nudie pictures and like hey want a pen pal and when you get out i'll you know all this stuff i was just like what's fucking wrong with people now i saw some crazy shit go down right there was this one female guard the one that got me booted off the honor pod because i wouldn't take a job she was she was just incredibly overconfident For whatever reason, she'd been working in the criminal justice system uh, on the correction side of it for a long time, and I guess nothing had ever happened, and she got maybe a little too big for her britches in how she treated people. Well, she treated this one guy this one time, I I guess, poorly. He was a lifer. He wasn't getting out. He had killed a bunch of people. So, like, that dude has nothing to lose. And for whatever reason, she felt like she could speak to him however she spoke to him one time, and we were walking down to breakfast one morning, and it's like 6.30 in the morning. And we're in this little hallway and she's walking by and I pass her and the guy behind me was him. And before I, heard, before I could turn around, I heard just this like incredible thump. And I turn around and he has hit her so hard in the face that it looks like half of it has been caved in. And then he just stands over the top of her and starts just stomping her with his boot. And you can't, I couldn't do anything. I can't go pull him off her. If I do that, then every inmate in prison goes, oh, Leafs with the guards, and now I become a target. Now, because the door's locked and I can't get out of the door, you're you're stuck in this little vacuum, and there's about four inmates, and we're all just kind of standing around, and we're watching this guy just bootstomp this woman, what I thought to death. And the buzzers go off, and like SWAT comes running in. We all get down on our face, and they pull him off her. And they get her to a doctor and they throw him in, in solitaire and everything like that. That was the most violent thing I ever saw. Another one was guys, they're able to order on canteen like hair gel or like hair oil and things like that. And a guy went, dumped all his hair oil in a, in a cup and put it in the microwave and got it just incredibly hot oil and walked into a cell and threw it on uh, an enemy of his. So this guy just got. Kind of, almost like boiled in in hot oil. So I saw some incredibly violent... I mean, it's the worst possible place you can imagine. And that's the thing I'm telling you. The scary part of all this is that this is okay. This is my life. This is how it's going to be. And so be it. A fucked up way to look at things. So 26 months have gone by. I won't see my family. I actually... My parents were trying to come visit me a couple times. I got on the phone with them and told them, Oh... They drug tested me last week. I tested positive for heroin. I can't have visitors for six months. That's how I stopped them from trying to come and visit me. Drugs were rampant in prison. They were easy to get if you wanted them, and I don't know why I didn't. It would have been the easiest thing for me to do, right? Take them, numb out, watch TV all day, get fat, stroke out, and die. So I don't know why I didn't. Maybe it was because the guards were a huge part of it. I fucking hated the guards. They were the worst possible people you can imagine. I think there's three types of people that are guards. I think there's one that actually just takes the job because of the benefits that come with it. You know, maybe for the family and things like that, but they're incredibly indifferent. They don't, they could care less. They're just gonna punch in and punch out, collect the, the benefits and the paycheck and go home. And there's the other one that is power hungry and loves the opportunity to have that power over somebody else to demean them that's most of the guards that I found to be and then there's a third who really feels like they want to make a shift and a change in in somebody's life those are rare few and far between the turnover in prison is incredibly huge as well if you want to go see a therapist you may go see one and that therapist may be gone in a week or two weeks or a month so how could you ever build any semblance of trust with anybody especially what you're saying, what you're talking about. AA meetings, it was an opportunity for guys from different pods who normally don't get the chance to see each other to meet up and exchange drugs and things like that. So that's what AA was used for in prison. So it certainly wasn't recovery-based. It was just the It's just the worst possible place you can imagine. And I was okay with it. About 26 months in, to that 32-month sentence. That roommate, who I watched every day try to be better, who I thought was incredibly stupid for doing it, he apparently felt comfortable enough to confront me about my attitude or just about me in general. And he said I had my head buried in the sand and that I didn't understand the value for the men in there and me, my value. And so he suggested we go down to the prison library and help prisoners who didn't know how to read, learn how to read. Now, I have had many of those kind of come to Jesus moments in my life from coaches, mentors, family, people who truly cared about me. And I just, I looked at them and told them to fucking go, leave me alone. I got this, I'm the big, strong football player that for me was weakness, right? And I can't tell you why I went. Maybe it was because the substance had been out of my system for 26 months. I was still fucked up in the head completely, but I hadn't been chemically dependent on something that I was thinking more clearly. I I don't know why, but I went. I didn't go without like some kind of hassle and and I still went begrudgingly like I remember walking down the hallway in the prison in my red jumpsuit like a little child metaphorically kicking rocks with my feet just kind of looking down and stumbling about going this is fucking stupid this isn't going to help me doesn't he know how important I am the irony and the fact that a guy in a prison in a red jumpsuit still thinks he's fucking important is just so asinine and I walk into this library where there were nine, 10 gentlemen, 50 years old, like walk over to me and in a place where you're supposed to show zero vulnerability, zero weakness, if you will consider that transparency, because it can get you killed. It can get you hurt. Look at me and say, Hey, Ryan, I'm, I, I don't know how to read. Can you help me? And that blew me the fuck away. Like, I've never heard another man in my life say, I need help. Can you help me? Growing up in the cowboy culture of, of Montana, and then in locker rooms, in college, in the pros, I never heard or saw another man do that. So if I haven't seen it, or if I haven't heard it, how the hell would you expect me to do it too when I need help? Like, those nights, or I was clamoring for somebody to help me, or when I'm playing in San Diego and I'm completely flushing my career down the toilet because I won't ask for help, that's that's exactly what this man was doing in the most adverse of places. And it blew me away. And I started helping him read. Like, nothing changes overnight. Like, you don't go to the gym and work out one day, and the next day you wake up and look in the mirror and you look like the fucking rock, all right? It's... It's about consistency. It's about showing up. And so I kept going. A few days passed, then a week, then a month. And I was sleeping better. I was more personable. I was talking to my family. And one night, I just kind of had the realization that I, what I was doing, I was being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. I used to think what I did on Saturdays and Sundays was me being of service to others. And that's fucked up. What a selfish and like ignorant and narcissistic way to look at you. So I kept doing it. And a few months later, I became the the TA for the Substance Abuse Counselor. And I knew that this was going to have to be at the foundation of who I was when I got out. Or nothing would change. I'm going to preface this to you. I could have been out a long time ago A, if I would have stayed and not fucked up in the treatment facility I would have been out nine months but even when I got into prison once you've done 25% of your sentence you can apply for parole and go in front of the parole board and be let out but every time my parole came up I just told him fuck off I'm fine here so I could have been out in essentially 14 months instead I sat in there for 32 months because I just was, I was okay with it. And again, it was my roommate. He said, my parole is up. I'm gonna go apply, will you come apply with me? And I don't know if he had not had his parole eligibility available, if I would've. But we went and did it together, and we were both granted our parole. He had been in for eight years. He didn't know if he was ever gonna get out, but he knew I was at some point. He would be asked to go to a kind of a transitional living space in a recovery facility before he would be actually totally released. But I was granted my parole. I walked out of that prison in Shelby, Montana on December 3rd, 2014, and the only two people there to meet me were the only two people that have unconditionally loved me my entire life, who never needed a famous football playing son, my mom and dad. I had no idea what was ahead of me. I couldn't rub two pennies together. I had no job prospects who was gonna fucking hire me. I had a credit score of about 500. There weren't girls lined up around the block to date me. The only thing I had was hope.